Welcome to The God Culture, where we urge you to challenge tradition. As 1 Thessalonians 5.21 tells us, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. We do not intend to be confrontational, but to compare what the Bible really says versus the traditions of men, which Jesus himself rebuked. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. Mark 7, 9. We are continuing our Solomon's Gold series today with part 6, Little Known History of Ophir, Philippines. By digging through history to find, in some cases, little-known facts about the Philippines especially, regarding the identity of Ophir, Tarshish, and Sheba. Again, in part 10 of our series, we will go even deeper into the ocean and use history, geography, and the Bible to prove that Philippines is Ophir. This is sure to blow your mind, but we still have some topics to deal with before getting to that as we are testing the location of these lands as well as most of the elements of their stories. And this history will also blow your mind. It ties together so significantly well. On a side note, we would like to thank the many people who have reached out to us with your encouraging emails and comments. We share these videos freely and hope you will share them with as many people as possible to educate the entire world that there are large gaps of missing history that must be set straight, especially in order to understand the Bible and form an accurate worldview based on truth, not the traditions of men. We would like to offer a special thank you to Robert Oliver, a tremendous researcher from Canada, for his Reflections, a Journal of Thoughts blog, as well as ancientphilippines.blogspot.com, as both of these sources were instrumental in pointing us in the right direction to begin this project in the very first place. Perhaps you have reviewed some of this information, but we will add to it and draw conclusions. We have provided a link to both sites in our description. Thus far, we have journeyed through the pages of Scripture, finding an abundance of clues, proving Ophir is a multitude of islands, a three years' journey from the Red Sea beyond the Indian Ocean, east in the Orient, where Joktan's sons Sheba, Havilah, and Ophir settled, in our second series, we proved the Queen of Sheba also came from the Philippines. Our third segment corrected Jonah's journey when applying the true location of Tarshish, Ophir, and Sheba. We then found the link between the wood Solomon acquired from Ophir and the gopher Ophir wood Noah used to build the ark with the Nara tree, a word of Hebrew origin, tying in the Queen of Sheba in its definition. Finally, we set sail with the ancient ships of Solomon's day, proving the three-year journey to Tarshish, Ophir, and Sheba was a much greater distance than most scholars realize. By the end of this series, and all the many proofs we will provide, we challenge anyone to prove that Philippines is not Ophir. When beginning our research, we were not sure this was the case. But now that we have continued our research all the way through, we are thoroughly 100% convinced that Philippines is a far more special land than it has been given credit. It is true that much of the Philippines' history has been all but erased, which raises a very large question. Why? We will let you draw your own conclusions on this, but this absence of history should raise flags as to who did this and why. What it does tell us is that the land of the Philippines must have far more significance than the world's power brokers would like us to know. Don't let them get away with that. Share these videos with everyone and let them begin their own journeys to prove this for themselves. 
Let us get thousands of people researching and uncovering, not under the umbrella of an organization, but by the leading of God's Holy Spirit. Let us all together establish a true grassroots crusade for knowledge with no leader but God and no one wishing to make a name nor gain power nor money. Again, the God culture is not affiliated with any denomination. So, let's go back in time and see what history reveals. Magellan's contemporary, Duarte Barbosa, wrote that the people of Malacca, Malaysia, had described to him an island group known as the Lucos, whose people were as rich and more eminent than the Chins, Chinese, and that traded much gold and silver in bars, silk, rich cloth, and much very good wheat, beautiful porcelains, and many other merchandises. Perhaps this culture was not one of barbarians wearing diapers. Hmm. In Magellan's Voyage Around the World, the author, Charles E. Noel, notes that Magellan himself had rewritten part of Barbosa's book, referring to the Lucos, and in his version, Magellan substituted Tarsus, Tarshish, and Ophir for the word Lucos. So, Lucos equals Tarshish and Ophir. That's huge, but this is not the only reference that actually provides directions. Ferdinand Pinto's journal describes Lucos Islands as belonging to a large group of islands many of which were rich in gold and silver. Pinto even goes as far as to give the exact latitude of the main Lucos Island as modern-day Luzon, Philippines. Multitude of islands rich in gold. No need to guess, though, because he gives the actual exact location of Lucos, which is Ophir and Tarshish and Sheba, as Luzon, Philippines. According to Collection General de Documentos Relativos a las Islas Filipinas, you might need to correct our Spanish there, document number 98, the Lucos were big bearded and white men. They were only interested in gold and silver when trading at Ophir. General Legazpi wrote, The ships of the Lucos were always laden with gold and silver, thus targets of the Spanish. These are big bearded white men, the Phoenicians, in other words, Hiram, king of Tyre, which was part of Phoenicia, whom King Solomon hired to sail to Ophir to get gold and other resources. So, if these distinctive-looking men came to your land, might you remember them? Yep. Might you name an island after them and their trade? Perhaps. They are the Lucos, in which Luzon is named because that was the capital of Ophir, where the Lucos lived and traded. Yet another tie to the story of Solomon, the Queen of Sheba, Ophir, and Tarshish. Imagine that. See, the word Lucos is actually of Hebrew origin. Lucos in Hebrew, luko, meaning to gather, to glean. Wow, and there's another fit. Because the Phoenicians, Hiram, king of Tyre, gathered and gleaned from Ophir, the Philippines. And here is what Filipinos told explorers when they arrived. 
Genoese pilot Leon Pencaldo said that when Magellan landed in an island called Malau, perhaps Mindanao, in the southeastern part of the Philippines, they said they have already been visited by Caucasian white people like them even before 1521. Magellan did not discover the Philippines. It was already discovered and inhabited and far more ancient than the nation of its Spanish conquerors. Older, in fact, than Spain, Britain, the Roman Empire, and the Catholic Church all combined. And they were to teach the Philippines how to live? Hmm. Also, from this same source, the Summa Oriental, from the Summa Oriental of Tome Paris, Perard de Laval, French navigator from 1578 to 1623, called Philippines Lucos from its largest and northwesternmost island, Luzon. Indians referred to the biggest island as Luzon. In 1545, a Portuguese, Pero Fidalgo, referred to Philippines as Lucos. So the French, Indian, Portuguese, and the Spanish all believed Lucos, also known as Lucos, Luconia, Lusan, Lusong, was the Philippines, specifically modern-day Luzon. Magellan and Barbosa believed Lucos was in fact Ophir and Tarshish, and we believe, we have proven, Sheba is in the same area, another island of the Philippines. One must raise the question, how about the British? It appears only the British did not wish to believe Ophir was located in the competing Spanish discovery of the Philippines. Why did the British to this day still not discover Ophir and Tarshish, however? Answer, it was already discovered. Oh, they did slap the name Mount Ophir onto a mountain in Johor, Malaysia. But even the locals didn't play along, as they continued to refer to their mountain by its Malay name, Gunung Ladong. This does prove that the British seed that Ophir and Tarshish, however, is in Southeast Asia. No history was ever produced to support such a claim, and the British are oddly silent on the subject. Some actually claim the British won the argument. That's why this went away. No, no they didn't. The argument was never won because the facts are so overwhelming that even to this day it is abundantly clear by the time we finish this video, we're going to hit you with so much history that is very clear that Philippines is in fact still Ophir and Tarshish. And it is going to be very hard for anyone to dispute this, but we're open to listening, so we'd love to hear your comments. Oh yeah, and they did not name this mountain Ophir until 1801. This is 2,800 years after Solomon. So again, it doesn't count. Samuel Purchas attempts to put forth an argument for Britain regarding Ophir, but there is no such support for any British find nor actual claim that ever matched history. The geography, the Bible facts as well as the actual life of the people themselves. Spain beat them in all of these arenas, hands down. Unfortunately, the British Empire overpowered the Spanish, and this story was swept under the carpet. That's why you don't hear about this in modern times. It's the victors who write history. And they choose to place things under the carpet, that they don't want you to know. There also was an argument raging in Europe, referenced in Carreri's journal of his visit to the Philippines. He mentions that he would not go into the argument raging in Europe at that time 
over whether the Philippines was actually originally populated by the descendants of biblical Tarshish. Well, this is the British, so they must be right, right? Wrong. They had an ulterior motive. Spain was their largest rival, and they did not want Spain to find Ophir. They wanted to. Here's what many other countries called the Philippines in antiquity. The Greeks, the Golden One. Indians, Islands of Gold. Chinese, Isles of Gold. The Buddhist, Pilgrim. Isle of Gold. Chinese again. Mountains of Gold. Chinese again. Golden Neighbor. Medieval Muslims, Land of Gold. Not enough yet? The Greek Christ, the Golden One, is the name given by ancient Greek writers to an island rich in gold to the east of India. Argyre was the island of silver and placed beyond the Ganges. Purpolis of the Erythian Sea, 1st century CE, says... The last part of the inhabited world toward the east, under the rising sun itself. Beyond the land of this, China, which brought silk to India, again, China. So, this description is talking about the last part of the inhabited world toward the east. Wait a minute, isn't that what Jesus called Sheba? Yes, under the rising sun itself. And what's the land of the rising sun? Wouldn't that be Japan? Hmm. And what's underneath of Japan? Well, that'd be the Philippines. This is a description of the Philippines. But we have more. Here is an 1898 reconstruction of Pomponius Mila's view of the world. Some scholars disingenuously claim Mila was showing Christ right next to Sumatra. This is what they actually say, which would make it Malaysia or Indonesia. However, here's the map. If right next to refers to three islands considerably to the north, then I guess they are right. The land they are showing as India would actually be the coast of China, and the islands off the coast of China are not Indonesia nor Malaysia. But here's another source. On the Turin world map from 1160 BC, this is 200 years before Solomon, before he went to Ophir, drawn by Egyptian scribe of the tomb Amenakiti, don't know how to say that, son of Ipoi. It depicts two Southeast Asian islands above the heads of Adam and Eve. Christ, Isle of Gold, and Argyre, Isle of Silver. Notice, Adam and Eve here are pictured with the serpent looking at Eve and Eve looking at Adam. But Adam, where is he looking? At the island of Christ. Why? Well, Adam and Eve just sinned, which is why they are covering up. And Adam is looking at the place where they are headed next when they leave the Garden of Eden. Christ, which is modern-day Philippines, which is ancient of fear and Havila. We discuss this further in our part 10, so don't miss it. Did this just tie in our theory that Adam and Eve moved to ancient Havila, which was renamed Ophir after the flood and is now Philippines? Also, this was drawn by an Egyptian, so we are now aware that the Egyptians knew of Ophir, Christ, 
and this is how their queens were dressed in the gold of Ophir from Psalm 45.9, which we shared before. And Flavius Josephus, around 100 CE, calls Christ in Latin Aria, and equates the island with biblical Ophir, from where the ships of Tyre and Solomon brought back gold and other trade items. March 4, 1525, less than six years after Magellan's voyage, Sebastian Cabot signed a contract with Spain, which did have as one of its objectives to discover Molokos, Malaysia, Tarsis, Tarshish, Ophir, Supanga, which is Japan, and Cathay, which is China. Cabot searched for a route to Ophir in the Orient through South America, the Americas. He failed, but he was not looking for Ethiopia, nor Yemen, nor India. He was hired by Spain, and they placed Ophir and Tarshish in his actual contract. These are not fictitious lands, nor something that history has forgotten. This may have been suppressed, but all this evidence is still right before us. Process of elimination. Ophir and Tarshish are not China, Japan, nor Malaysia, Indonesia. This leaves the Philippines again. Also, we'll review a History Channel claim that Gadara, Spain, and we've talked about Tarsisus, Spain, supposedly being the biblical Tarshish. There's a problem here. Why would Spain hire an explorer to sail to Tarshish in the Orient when he could walk down the street? Because any claim coming from Spain to be Tarshish is just plain wrong. We showed you the correct journey of Jonah, which is the only time Tarshish was a west route because the Red Sea port was broken up and Jonah was not looking for the shortest route, but was in fact running from God. The Bible is clear otherwise that Tarshish is Ophir and it is east in the Orient. I guess someone forgot to tell Magellan, the Spanish writers of Colección General de Documentos Relativos a las Islas Filipinas. Wow, that was okay, huh? Uh, Cabot, Pinto, and more we will cover from Spain, who actually are living in Tarshish? No! They clearly were not aware of this. Neither was the king of Spain. Rather odd, don't you think? If that's not enough, how about specific directions from the Spanish to Ophir from Spain, even? Yep, this is all documented as well. Check this out. In Colección General de Documentos Relativos a las Filipinas, located Ophir, as, and you can follow the map starting in Spain down to Africa, Ophir can be found traveling from the Cape of Good Hope in Africa to India, to Burma, to Sumatra, to Molokos, Malaysia, to Borneo, to Sulu, to China, then finally, Ophir. Not specific enough? Oh, it goes in more detail. Ophir was in front of China towards the sea of many islands, oh, Philippines, 7,000 islands, where the Molokans, Malaysians, Chinese, and Lucos met to trade. Lucos again were the Phoenicians. Only two archipelagos fit this description, many islands, the Philippines and Japan. This could not be Japan because Molokans 
had not gone there yet at this point in history. Again, we eliminate the obvious, and what's left, history well establishes that Philippines is Lucos, which is Tarshish and Ophir. Why? Because the Phoenicians were known as the Lucos, in which Luzon was named, tying them together in yet another way, and we believe Sheba, but history, also ties in the skill of these cunning craftsmen of the Philippines. Antonio Pigafetta, Italian scholar, traveled with Magellan and wrote that Mindoro possessed great skill in mixing gold with other metals and gave it natural and perfect appearance that could deceive the best of silversmiths. The natives were also known for jewelries made of other precious stones, of Tarshish and Ophir. And this matches scripture from one of the Ophir-Tarshish passages we discussed. Jeremiah 10.9 says, Silver spread into plates is brought from Tarshish and gold from Upaz, which we know as the gold of Pisan, which surrounds the river that surrounds Havilah, which is Ophir and Philippines, the work of the workman and of the hands of the founder. Blue and purple is their clothing. Hmm, blue and purple. They are all the work of cunning men. Quite a description. Are you starting to get the hint yet? This ties Tarshish, Ophir, as the land of Upaz, which we learned was the gold of the Pisan River, which is the river that flows from Eden. There is more here, though. These are the same cunning men, workmen, described by Pigafetta regarding the Philippines as Tarshish and Ophir. But what about this purple and blue clothing? Seems like an odd way to describe a people. Wouldn't they have changed this over the years? Is there an historical link to the Philippines and a significant showing of blue and purple clothing? We'll show you an actual illustration in a minute. But first, the Spanish actually described the Filipino... Ophirian, in detail. Antonio de Morga, 1609, writes, About their necks they wear gold necklaces, wrought like spun wax, and with links in our fashion, some larger than others. On their arms they wear armlets and wrought gold, which they call calambigas, and which are very large and made in different patterns. Some wear strings of precious stones, cornelians and agates, and other blue and white stones, which they esteem highly. They wear around the legs some strings of these stones, and certain cords covered with black pitch in many foldings as garters. And now for the illustrations. Here are some of the pages of the Boxer Codex from 1595. First notice, these are not barbarians. This is a sophisticated, wealthy society. Look at all the gold they were wearing. Look at the Philippines today. Can you explain to us how exactly the Spanish, U.S., Holy Roman Catholic Empire helped that country move forward? Jesus said you would know a false prophet, a sheep in wolves' clothing, by its fruits. That's Matthew seven fifteen twenty. What fruit does this demonstrate? Oh yeah, do you notice any blue and purple? Hmm. As we have said before, the facts that have come together in every element of this history of Ophir, Tarshish, and Sheba always lead to the Philippines. Other than a choice few Filipinos like Jose Rizal, how could this have been ignored for so long? Also, do these people look Japanese? No. Chinese? 
No. Spanish? No. They are clearly 100% Filipinos, yet there are actually historians who try to claim Ophir is elsewhere in the Orient. Nope. Only one place fits. Philippines. These must all be royalty, though, right? Wrong. Look at the native commoners in the middle of your screen. Still pretty decked in gold. Note the Cagayan woman and the Visayas couple. They're not royalty either. They're not identified as so. But could that just be an oversight? Guido de Laverzaris in 1574 documents, there are some chiefs in this island who have on their persons 10 or 12,000 ducats worth of gold in jewels, to say nothing of the lands, slaves, and mines that they own. These people were wealthy. There are so many of these chiefs that they are innumerable. You can't count them. Likewise, the individual subjects of these chiefs have a great quantity of the said jewels of gold, which they wear on their persons, bracelets, chains, and earrings of solid gold, daggers of gold, and other very rich trinkets. These are generally seen among them. And not only the chiefs and free men have plenty of these jewels, but even slaves possess and wear golden trinkets upon their persons openly and freely. So everyone had much gold and wealth, the regular common man and even the slaves. These don't sound like the kind of slaves, by the way, that we hear about in the U.S. who are wearing chains and being whipped and beaten. Even they possess wealth. Slaves are referenced in the Bible, but also sound nothing like the slave trade we hear about in America either. The Spanish documented this wealth, and then somehow it disappeared, leaving what some refer to today as a third world country of the Philippines. How does this happen? In this island, there are many gold mines, some of which have been inspected by the Spaniards, who say that the natives work them as is done in Nueva España, with the mines of silver, and as in these mines, the vein of ore here is continuous. Essays have been made, yielding so great wealth that I shall not endeavor to describe them, lest I be suspected of lying. Time will prove the truth. Hernando Riquel, on the island of Luzon, 1574. Of course, these quotes and maps and directions and illustrations and hieroglyphics are nice, but where is the physical evidence? Well, they do kind of count as that, but... Wouldn't we find especially some of this pictured gold jewelry if it existed? Oh, we're glad you asked. Sa paglipas ng mga taon, ang mga sinaunang ginto na nahukay sa Surigao ay nauwi sa kamay ng mga dealer at palihim na naibenta sa mga maperang kolektor. Ang iba ay napunta pa nga sa ibang bansa. Some of these gold objects had found their way in European collections already. Men and women both wore jewelry. Actually, the men si Dr. Florina Baker ang dating director at curator ng Gold of Ancestors ng Ayala Museum. Sa tansyaraw ng mga eksperto, ang makalaglag pangang gintong na hukay ni Berto ay hinubog noong ikasampu hanggang ikalabing tatlong siglo. Ibig sabihin, ginawa ang mga alahas tatlong daang taon bago pa manapadpad si Magellan sa Pilipinas. Ani Baker, marami na raw siyang nakitang hukay na ginto 
o archaeological gold mula sa Pilipinas pero walang hihigit pa sa kasalukuyang exhibit. Nothing of this scale and magnitude and magnificence has ever been seen. Isuot ang sacred thread para madama ang bigat nito. Itong tinatawag na sacred thread ang pinakaimportanting pyesa ng gold collection ng Ayala Museum. Halos apatakilo ang timbang nitong gintong sablay. Wow! Uy, napakabigat. Uy, magkakakalo ka nito. <laughs> ang bigat. Pero higit pa sa bigat ng solid gold na sablay, Humanga ako sa pagkakagawa nito. Tatlong iba-ibang layer ng ginto na may kani-kaniyang disenyo ang pinagpatong-patong sa pamamagitan ng pinong-pinong pagkakahabi ng sablay. Ang mga pampalamuting bolitas na ito, hindi na raw ginagawa ngayon. Ubod ng pulido ang pagkakagawa ng sablay at lalong kamangha-manghang isiping ginawa ito isang libong taon na ang nakakaraan. Tunay ngang walang kaparis ang Surigao Treasure. At sa aming pagbabalik, sasariwaan natin ang kalidad at antas ng yaman, kaalaman at pamumuhay ng ating mga ninuno nang una silang masilayan ni Magellan. And where did this gold come from? When the Spanish arrived, the Philippines was so gilded with gold that most of the gold mines had been neglected. The natives proceed more slowly in this and content themselves with what they already possess in jewels and gold ingots handed down from antiquity, ancient times, and inherited from their ancestors. This is considerable, for he must be poor and wretched who has no gold chains, calambegas, and earrings. Again, who had this gold and jewelry wealth? Everyone. Not just the royal class, which was innumerable, by the way, not a small group that led the country, no. And it was handed down from their ancestors not necessarily forged in that era, as the gold mines were neglected. One actually stood out as poor if they did not have gold and jewels on their person. The mines had been neglected, meaning they had enough gold from their ancestors, and gold was not in demand among Filipinos, Ophirians. Can you imagine this? Isn't this the same as the Boxer Codex? The Boxer Codex actually helped to date and ID many pieces that were discovered in Surigao. However, this only dates when the gold was worn in the picture. It could have been 2,000 years old, passed through several generations. And how do archaeologists decide the gold could be dated? Gold cannot be tested and dated, but they matched it with the pottery found with it. That doesn't tell us when the gold was mined and forged. This does show a timestamp, however, of when the gold items were last owned, though. The gold could still have been passed for centuries, and according to history, it was. We don't have time today, but look up the breastplate the high priest of the temple war in Israel. Could this sacred thread be similar? Was it made in the Philippines for Solomon? Is there a connection with this scripture? Daniel 10.5 Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of upas. Again, we know Upaz is the gold of the Pisan River, which surrounds ancient Havila, which became Ophir after the flood and is modern-day Philippines. You gotta see our part 10, 
Where is the river from Eden? We prove this. Did Daniel see something similar to this sacred thread from the Philippines or the belt of fine gold worn here? We do know that Philippine gold has been found in ancient Egypt. Gold jewelry of Philippine origin has been found in first century Egypt. What? How is this possible? This is confirmed from three different sources. Could it be that Cebu, which we covered, was spelled with an S and SH in history? Shebu is the same meaning as Sheba. But could it be that this ancient Egypt tie has a link here? On the left, pictured, is a necklace from the Philippines from the Surigao treasure find, dated at least back to the 10th to 13th centuries. Again, we believe it is much older than that. Notice how similar it is to the Shebu collar. Wait, the Egyptians called their collar Shebu? The ancient name of the kingdom of Cebu, Sheba? Yes. Let's take another look at the Boxer Codex illustrations and see what it shows. Every person pictured here in this illustration is wearing a necklace similar to the Egyptian Shebu collar. Is this merely a coincidence or is Shebu, the Shebu collar, actually named after its place of origin? Shebu, Cebu, Sheba. Hmm. So, when the Bible references Solomon's navy returning from Ophir with 420 talents of gold in Kings and Chronicles, a talent, by the way, is 75 to 150 pounds, depending on the unit of measurement. This would have been over 30 tons of gold. We know Solomon's ships may have been able to carry up to 600 tons, so certainly were adequate for the journey. Where is the sophisticated mining equipment, though? It would have required... Very sophisticated equipment to dig into the mountains deep for gold, right? Says Pigafetta, Magellan's historian on the Raja of Butuan. Pieces of gold the size of walnuts and eggs are found by sifting the earth in the island Mindanao of that king, Butuan who came to our ships. All the dishes of that king are of gold, and also some portion of his house, as we were told by that king himself. He had a covering of silk on his head and wore two large golden earrings fastened in his ears. At his side hung a dagger, the haft of which was somewhat long and all of gold, and its scabbard of carved wood. He had three spots of gold on every tooth, and his teeth appeared as if bound with gold. Wow! Gold nuggets the size of walnuts and golden are chicken eggs, basically? Wow! Found by sifting through the earth? This doesn't denote the need to dig deep into the mountain. It sounds as if this gold was nearer to the surface. This is why this place is so special. Even today, there is gold mining taking place all over the Philippine archipelago. Okay, hold on a minute. Before we wrap up, haven't we all been taught that people came to the Philippines from the other Pacific Islands? Wouldn't that dispel a lot of this? If it were true, it would. But a new study has been released by the American National Academy of Sciences 
that actually disproves that. It declares, Philippines is the most likely ancestral homeland of the Polynesians, whose forebears colonized the Pacific about 3,200 years ago. Polynesian chickens had their genetic roots in the Philippines. Through chicken migration patterns, and chickens do not island hop on their own without human intervention, by the way, scientists have proven the Polynesian roots are in the Philippines. But that's not all. Even more significant, a team of archaeologists led by Dr. Armand Mijares of the University of the Philippines, Dilman, has confirmed that a foot bone they discovered in Kaleo Cave in Cagayan Province was at least 67,000 years old. Taban Man's Palawan remains were a relatively young 50,000 years old. So far, this could be the earliest human fossil found in the Asia-Pacific region. The presence of humans in Luzon shows these early humans already possessed knowledge of sea craft making in this early period, Majars told GMA News. Let us be clear. Scientific methods for dating bones are highly, highly suspect. We recommend you prove this for yourself. We do not believe that they have even a remote ballpark as far as the actual dating because there is no such thing as accurate carbon dating and scientists have no idea what the atmosphere and ecosystem were like before the flood. And scientists admit that they cannot accurately date any fossil that has been underwater, which would be the entire world. But we do believe they can say Kaleo Man is the oldest and Taban Man is pretty ancient, more ancient than any other human bones found in the Pacific Islands. That is safe to say. Here is the real question, however. What if they actually found bones of men who lived in the day of Adam's generations prior to the flood in the Philippines? One other thing this news story confirms is that man was boating in ancient times. We feel very strongly that this information is credible as even when quoting websites, we try to review the original source, just as we do oftentimes with Wikipedia. This was quite an historic journey, but one every Filipino should venture. Share this with everyone. There is much more that we could have included in this video. In fact, we will be making some hypotheses based on history, as to which general areas of the Philippines belong to the area of Ophir, of Sheba, and of Tarshish. We will need the next segment, however, to pull it all together. As for part 7, we are following the Hebrew trail of the Philippines, which is powerful. Part 8, not Ophir, will expose the claims of other areas saying they are Ophir, Tarshish, and Sheba. And there is not one coherent claim outside of the Philippines. Part 9, Prophecy of Ophir, where Jesus and others in the Bible speak of the future of the Philippines. And this will surprise many people. And Part 10, which will blow your mind. Where is the river from Eden? Takes you all the way back to the history of the Philippines in the most ancient of times. We hope you will watch them all and send these to everyone. We offer them free of charge. Thank you for watching our Solomon's Gold series. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and view our website at thegodculture.com. Always remember 
to prove all things for yourself. Thank you. Thank you.